fellow chairman, my dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. As our brother Alan reminded us, we finished our class last year by considering the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now after the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that Matthew, Mark and Luke all omit the next few events in the life of the Lord. And so in tracing through the chronological sequence of the life of the Lord, we are brought into the Gospel of John. And it is John now who who records the next few events. In fact, we find that the last half of John chapter 1, John chapter 2, chapter 3 and into chapter 4 all precede anything else now that is recorded by either Matthew, Mark or Luke. And in recording the next events in the life of the Lord, uh, John, the Apostle John that is, brings us right back to John the Baptist. We find ourselves once more in verse 19 involved with the work of John the Baptist. It's interesting as we look at the various gospel records to see how the gospel writers write concerning John. Luke, for instance, is particularly meticulous in showing us the exact time, the date at which John the Baptist commenced his work. Matthew and Mark both tell us the type of clothes that John wore and the outward appearance that he bore to the people that went down to meet him. For we find that John, who writes his gospel record mainly for believers, all he states about John is that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That was all that was really important to John. The fact that the Baptist was sent from God. And that's really the only thing that is of any importance to believers of the truth. John was a man sent from God. And John tells us really very little of the ministry of, of, of the Baptist. He takes us straight to the very climax of the Baptist's work. To the very aspect of the work in which the Baptist introduced the Messiah to the people of Israel and having made ready a people ready to receive him when he came. And we find that as we go through this first chapter of the Gospel of John, we find that John marks out clearly the first week in the public ministry. We have on the sheet that was given to you marked out that week. You will notice there that we have set forth how John on the first day of that week, in verses 19 to 28, records how John witnessed to the deputation which came down from Jerusalem. On the second day of that week, recorded in verses 29 to 34, we find John reveals Christ to the people, indicating him as the Lamb of God and testifying that he was the one whom he saw the spirit open and the the, the heaven open and the spirit come down and rest upon him. In verses 35 to 42 he records the third day of that week in which John witnesses to his disciples and Andrew, uh, we believe John, which we'll show you later, and Peter are introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ. On the fourth day in verse 43 we see how Christ purposed in his heart now to leave Bethabara and travel north to Galilee. The fifth and sixth days of that week, we believe, were occupied, as outlined in verses 41 to 44 to 51, in the journey to Galilee and the conversion of Philip and Nathanael, who are called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The seventh day of that week we were introduced to in verse 1 of chapter 2 where we read in the third day, that is the third day from the day that was mentioned in verse 43 which was the fourth day of that week. So it completes the week being the seventh day of the week and there upon that day there was the wedding in Cana in Galilee. And so that marks out for us the first week in the public ministry. 
very interesting when we see the first week of the Lord set before us there in detail here in the Gospel of John. As we go through the Gospel writings we will find that the last week in the Lord's life is set before us in considerable detail. And so we find we're given the first week and the last week of the Lord's life. So it's quite interesting as we look at this first week in the Lord's life, in Lord's ministry. I believe as we go through this first week and we look at the events of the first week, I believe we can see a rough parallel with the seven days of the creation week. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and we read that in the first day darkness covered the face of the earth. But God said, let there be light. We look at this first week recorded here and we have the, the priests and Levites coming down from Jerusalem saying to John, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Who are you? They didn't know who he was. He'd been there for three and a half years testifying and preaching but they didn't know who he was and it shows the darkness that settled over that nation. But there in the forthright answer of John we see light shining forth in that darkness just as God said on the first day of the creation week let there be light. And on the second day of the creation week God divided the the uh, uh, waters into the waters that were above the firmament and the waters that were below the firmament. He divided the heavenly waters from the earthly waters and he called the expanse between them heaven. Now on the second day of this week we find John pointing out the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, Behold the Lamb of God. In pointing him out as the lamb, as we shall see, he was pointing him out as a sacrificial victim. You know, when it comes down to it, it's the very principle of sacrifice that divides that which is spiritual from that which is fleshly. It divides the heavenly waters from the earthly waters. You see, many perhaps will, will, will gladly receive the, 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 the principles of, 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 of the teaching of the kingdom of God on earth and, and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and so forth until it comes to the point of having to put the flesh to death until it comes to the point of having to sacrifice the things that really are the object of their affections and that's where the point of division comes so you see on this second day as the Lord Jesus Christ as the sacrificial victim, it divided the, 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 uh, the principle that was to divide the heavenly things from the earthly things. And we see that principle set forth on the second day. Now on the third day of the creation week, God raised up the earth so that it was raised up out of the waters and he caused life to spring forth upon the earth in the form of vegetation. And upon the third day of this week we see John, Andrew and Peter introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ and accepting the Lord Jesus Christ and they're raised up to newness of life just as on the third day of the creation week the earth was raised up out of the waters and brought forth life. And on the fourth day of the creation week God appointed the sun, the moon and the stars as the light bearers in the heavens. And on the fourth day of this week we see the Lord Jesus Christ striding out from Bethabara. He's left John now. He's been introduced as the Messiah of Israel. He's got his first disciples and he's striding now up to Galilee in the full power of the Spirit as John tells us in Luke chapter 1. And just as on the fourth day of the creation week the sun, the moon and the stars appeared in the heavens for the first time now on this fourth day we see now that John is disappearing from the sea and the Lord Jesus Christ is shining forth in, the full, in his full brightness as the sun going forth uh, uh, to become the light of the world. 
and they are associated with him are his first disciples as the moon and the stars of the political heavens of the age to come. And on the fifth and sixth days of the creation week we find that God created the living animals and, uh, and on the sixth day man. On the fifth and sixth days of this week we find uh, the, the conversion of Philip and Nathaniel and in verse 51 we find the Lord Jesus Christ declared to be the son of man. He is the second Adam. Just as on the sixth day of the creation week the first Adam stood forth a living soul here we have the second Adam the son of man manifested upon the earth. And then on the seventh day of that week there was the wedding at Cana. And on the seventh day of the creation week Adam and Eve were united in marriage and entered into that rest that God had prepared for them. And in the 7,000th year of the millennial week of course the Lord Jesus Christ and his ecclesia will be united in marriage and will enter into the rest that is is, uh, reserved for the people of God. So it's quite interesting that as we go through the days of this week we can see a parallel I believe with the days of the creation in Genesis chapter 1. And I believe that the scripture is directing our attention here to the fact that here is the beginning of a new creation and here was the perfect man who was going to develop out of the human race his perfect bride who would be united together in marriage in the millennial rest that uh, is yet in store for the people of God. Now it's interesting to look at this week in another way. We find that here is a week in which there are perfectly blended together the work of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. The week begins with the Lord, with, with John the Baptist Uh, uh, delivering his message to the deputation from Jerusalem uh, pointing out the Lord Jesus Christ to the people the week finishes with John disappeared from the scene and the Lord Jesus Christ being the centre as it were of the stage and and performing the miracle at um, at the the wedding at Cana and so it's a week which blends together perfectly the work of John and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, as we look at that week, we find it's right in the middle of the week that this transition really took place. You see, the first, second and third days of the week, John is, is, is uh, foremost really upon the scene pointing out the, uh, the, the Lamb of God and directing his, his disciples to, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's when we come to the fourth day that we find that the real transition takes place. When the plan to leave Bethabara, to leave John behind and to stride out upon the work that lay before him. And so it was on that fourth day or about three and a half days, about the middle of that week, that the transition really took place. And here in this first week of the ministry of the Lord we seem to have a little little microcosm of the ministry of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. The two works being blended perfectly together in one and there in the middle of the week the transition taking place and John the Baptist disappearing out of it and the Lord Jesus Christ shining forth in his full strength and power. And just as we know how the ministry of of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ lasted seven years, one week of years. It was in the middle of that week, three and a half years, right in the middle of that week that John's work was completed and the Lord Jesus Christ commenced his work. And so, in the structure of this week as recorded here in John I believe there are these interesting features of that which John sets before us. This is the section of of scripture really in which John 
did introduce the Lord Jesus Christ to the people of that nation. You know, it's very interesting to note, as we again have set out on the, the sheet here, um, the second point on the sheet, we've made reference to the number of ways in which the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to in this chapter. Just in the last 20 verses or so of this chapter, we find every major title of the Lord Jesus Christ used. See verses 34 and 49. We have him referred to as the Son of God. Verses 29 and 36. John points him out as the Lamb of God. Verses 38 and 49 he is addressed as Rabbi or Master. Verse 41, um, Andrew goes to Peter and says, We have found the Messiah, or the Christ, as we would better know it. Verse 45, we find Philip goes to Nathaniel. We found he of whom Moses and the prophets did write. Nathaniel comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, you're, you're the, Surely you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And in verse 51 the Lord Jesus Christ uh, refers to himself as the Son of Man. And so there in these few verses it's really quite astounding that we have the Lord Jesus Christ referred to in all these ways. But you know there's almost every aspect of the Lord's work and mission referred to in those verses. You see he's both Son of Man and Son of God. in accordance with the principles of Genesis 3.15 the seed of the woman begotten by the power of God he's the lamb of God marking him out as a sacrificial victim he's rabbi or a teacher he's the anointed he's the the fulfilment of all that Moses and the prophets did right and he's destined to be the king of Israel and so we see that in this introductory chapter The Lord Jesus Christ is introduced in almost every aspect of his work and mission he's referred to. And he's introduced in every possible way through these few verses of this particular chapter. And so then let us take the days of this week and let us look at them now in a little more detail and let's consider the events that took place upon these various days of this week. And so firstly verses 19 to 28 we have the deputation from Jerusalem which was sent by the Pharisees. We're told in verse 19 that the deputation was made up of priests and Levites from Jerusalem. We're told in verse 24 that they were sent by the Pharisees Now we're not going to uh, consider these verses in in great detail because we have alluded to them uh, in in our previous studies. There are certain things we need to note as we pass by. We notice first of all the timing of this deputation from Jerusalem. We learn from John here that it was the day before Christ returned from the wilderness. Now that's very interesting really. Because it tells us either, tells us that, that, that this deputation from Jerusalem took place very close to the time when the priesthood, we believe, uh, sent a representative to Christ in the wilderness. So that either these things would have been happening almost at the same time simultaneously, or else this one here recorded in John chapter 1 happened almost immediately after the the representative visited the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. We know that after he was tempted in the wilderness and the, 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 the tempter left him, we're told that angels ministered under him. Now we don't know how long was involved there. We, 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 we believe that the angels would have come and ministered to the Lord Jesus Christ with food and perhaps in other ways too. We don't know how much time would have been involved between the completion of that temptation and his return to John here as outlined in the the 
following verses. So there's one thing we can be sure of and that is that this deputation from Jerusalem came to John either about the same time that that Christ is being tempted in the wilderness or else immediately afterwards. It would be quite interesting really if it was immediately afterwards because here the priesthood at Jerusalem had sent a representative out to, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ whom they tracked down and found in the wilderness. They brought their very attractive propositions to him, testing him out to see if he's the Son of God. But they got refuted on every point. There was no point that they could, could go and find any common ground with the Lord Jesus Christ. So they would have come back from the wilderness. Uh, probably quite convinced that he wasn't the Messiah anyway at that stage. He was just some religious crank that had gone off into the wilderness for a while. But you see, there's a time of great agitation, I believe, in Israel now. For some six weeks, John had been declaring that the Messiah was in their midst. But where was he? They couldn't find him. They'd gone out to this fellow in the wilderness, perhaps, if, if, if this deputation did follow on that temptation. They'd gone out to him, they got no satisfaction at all from him, so now a deputation is sent back down to John and there's a certain urgency about things now. They come down and they ask him, who are you? And he says, look, I'm not the Christ. He denies that he's the Christ. And they say, well, who are you then? Are you Elias? Are you that prophet? Presumably the prophet foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. He says, no, I'm not. So they say to him, then, who are you that we might give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? And he clearly identifies himself as the one foretold in Isaiah chapter 40 as the voice crying in the wilderness, making straight away for the Lord, and so on and so forth. And so the, you see there's, there's an element of agitation there as this deputation comes down to him pressing him to tell, him, tell them who he was. Was he the Christ or was he Elias or what was going on? And they say to him in verse 25 why then do you baptise if you're not Christ or Elias or that prophet? And he says in verse 26 I baptise with water but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. There is something rather tragic about those words in verse 26. He said, John says to them, there is one standing among you but you don't know him one whom ye know not. You know, we go back to um, back to verse 9, verse, uh, verse 10 of this chapter. The Apostle John speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he says, he is the true light. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made uh, by him or, or on account of him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. You know, it was a failing of Israel right down through the ages. We go back to Isaiah chapter 1. The first chapter of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah laments this very fact. He says in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 1, He says, the ox knoweth his owner and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. And although the ox or the ass knows its master, knows where to go to get food, Israel didn't know. They didn't know Yahweh. They didn't know where their their strength and their life would come from. The prophet Jeremiah came up against the same problem. In Jeremiah chapter 9 we see again him lamenting the the, uh, apostate state of his nation at that time. 
And in verse 3, speaking of their ways, he says, and they bend their tongues like a bow for lies. For they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. For they proceed from evil to evil. And they know not me, saith Yahweh. This was God's own nation. It was Yahweh's ecclesia. And yet they didn't know Yahweh. We go down into verse 6. He says, Thine habitation is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, says Yahweh. And yet we have the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as we were reminded on, on, um, on Sunday. The, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 17 and verse 3. This is life eternal. To know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And the Messiah was in their midst. And for the next three and a half years, the Messiah was to minister to their needs in the midst of that nation. But they knew him not. They didn't know him. They didn't understand the purpose and the reason for his mission. They didn't know him. And consequently, they did not come within the saving power of, of the of his work. It's a lesson, brethren and sisters, for every one of us. Every one of us as individuals must ask ourselves the question, do we really know the Lord Jesus Christ? If the Lord Jesus Christ was suddenly in our midst tonight, would we know him? Would we accept him? Or would we be like Israel of old? and know him not and reject him. And so these things happened upon the first day. An indication of the darkness that prevailed upon that land at that time. But John's words were like a light in that darkness, shining as a light to those who had ears to hear. And there were a few, as we shall see, that did have ears to hear. In, um, in verse 27 he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He it is who coming after me is preferred, preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. He show, shows us something of the humility of John the Baptist. John was one of the greatest among the prophets. He had, the, he had been given the greatest work to do that any man had been given to do, to introduce the Messiah to Israel. But it shows us the tremendous humility of the man as he compares himself with the Lord Jesus Christ. As he sees the Lord Jesus Christ as his superior in every way. And he sees how the most menial act of humble service he wasn't worthy of. And we're told that these things in verse 28 happened, took place in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptising. Now in verse 29 we're introduced to the next day of that week. The next day we're told John seeth Jesus coming unto him. We find that upon this day of the week the Lord Jesus Christ now had commenced a journey. A journey out of the wilderness where the temptation had taken place. A journey that was going to take him back up into Galilee. But on the way on that journey he stops at Bethabara for two or three days. Now perhaps we could just uh, refresh our minds as to the, to the journeys of the Lord Jesus Christ to this point of time. In our studies we've seen the Lord Jesus Christ born at Bethlehem, just south of Jerusalem. After being taken up to Jerusalem as a, as a little babe to be presented at the temple, he returned to Bethlehem they then had to flee down into Egypt because of the rage of Herod. We know how from Egypt they returned up to Nazareth. He lived at Nazareth. He journeyed down to Jerusalem at 12 years of age. That's the one journey we're told of. Back to Nazareth. Now at the age of 30 he strode out from Nazareth down to Bethabara. He'd been baptised of John. He disappeared into the wilderness down probably in the regions of the Dead Sea down there. We're not told exactly where but somewhere down in the regions by the Dead Sea there the temptation had taken place. And now from that region right down in the south there 
He's to journey now back up into Galilee. But on his way he comes back to Bethabara, back to where John is baptising, and there he spends two or three days before he continues on his journey up into Galilee to attend the wedding at Cana, which is recorded in John chapter 2. Now on this particular day, the day after the deputation from Jerusalem had come down, we find that John is, is there involved in his work with the people and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ returning from that wilderness and coming back to Bethabara. And as John sees him coming in verse 29, we see that he, with his eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, he witnesses to the people around him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And he goes on in verse 32, testifying how he saw the heaven open and the Spirit descending upon him and so forth. And so as John sees the Lord Jesus Christ coming to him, he directs the attention of the people to him with the words, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And how much, brethren and sisters, there is contained in those words. You know, not even the disciples themselves, I believe, really understood what John was really saying at that time. And what a wealth of, of, of information about the character and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is contained in those few words, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And so John refers to the Lord as a Lamb. We find that, that in the New Testament, the Lamb... Uh, is associated with the Lord Jesus Christ in two ways. Firstly, as far as character is concerned. And secondly, as far as the significance as a sacrifice was concerned. In Acts chapter 8, for example, we find in verse um, 22, Um, it's not verse 22 but it's uh, down a little little further it's where Philip was um, in verse 28 we read how the Ethiopian eunuch was sitting in his chariot and reading Isaiah the prophet and Philip runs and come up alongside him in verse 30 Philip uh, uh, heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said unto him understandest thou what thou readest he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come and sit with him. And verse 32, the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? And here, of course, we know these words of Isaiah 53 and verse 7. Refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it draws attention to the fact that as a, he was led as a lamb uh, uh, before its shearer, and, as a, a, and a lamb is dumb before its shearer, so he opened not his mouth. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And a lamb is a dependent, inoffensive, submissive animal. And in that very uh, appellation of the Lamb of God, it was indicated the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. His, his humble, submissive character in which he would submit to the uh, uh, hand of Almighty God upon him. But that was indicative of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the first of Peter chapter 1 and verse 9 where again we have the Lamb referred to, 1 and verse 19 rather, the Apostle Peter speaks how we're redeemed, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a Lamb without blemish and without spot. And here he refers to the blood of that Lamb. 
the sacrificial aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ is also drawn to our attention in this statement Behold the Lamb of God. We know that lambs were prominent in sacrifice right from the very earliest times. We read in the Apocalypse of the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. We read of Abel offering a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain because he offered of the firstlings of his flock. We go back to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 8. We find some very significant words, I believe. When Abraham is journeying toward Mount Moriah and Isaac asks him a simple question. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And in verse 8 we read, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And there back in the, the life of Abraham, we have the lamb figuring prominently. And the man Abraham, full of faith, saying God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Now we have John the Baptist saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. Abraham was confident that God would provide a lamb for a burnt offering. And John the Baptist pointed out that lamb to the people. There was the Lamb of God, there was the Lamb of God's providing that would be a burnt offering. You see, the burnt offering really was the foundation stone of the sacrificial law. No burnt offering, there could be no other offerings. Because first of all, there had to be a perfect man. First of all, there had to be one of Adam's race who could totally dedicate themselves to God and present themselves to God as a perfect, acceptable burnt offering. And that offering having made and accepted, then there was a mediator. Then the other offerings, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering, could all be introduced because there was a perfect man. There was a mediator. There was a sacrifice through whom a covering of sins could be obtained. But Abraham recognised that. And he saw that that seed that was promised would first be a lamb for a burnt offering. And the, and, and the apostle and the John the Baptist, as he saw the Lord Jesus Christ coming towards him, saw that in that man was the lamb that God would provide for a burnt offering. Now the lamb didn't finish with its use as a burnt offering. We find that every year the very highlight of national life at the beginning of every year was the offering of a lamb, the Passover lamb. And that Passover lamb was the very lamb through whom Israel were redeemed out of Egypt, through which Israel were brought into existence as a nation. They were brought into existence by the sacrifice of a lamb. You know, we find that in the offering of that that, that Passover lamb, there are incorporated the principles of all the sacrifices. The Passover lamb, first of all, had to be totally consumed, just as the burnt offering had to be totally consumed, totally given to Yahweh. But the blood of the Passover lamb was used in a special way. It was put upon the doorposts of their houses. Just as the blood of the sin and trespass offering was used in a special way and put upon the horns of the altar. And so as the, the body was totally consumed like the burnt offering, so the blood was used in a special way like the blood of the sin and trespass offering. And then that lamb had to be eaten like the carcasses. <coughs> of the peace offering. So there was incorporated in the Passover offering of the Passover lamb the principles of all the sacrifices. And it was by the offering of the Passover lamb that Israel was redeemed as a nation. <laughs> Is it any coincidence 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, three and a half years after John marked him out as the Lamb of God, died at the very time of Passover. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 that Christ is our Passover Lamb through whom we are redeemed. And so we see the significance of these lambs as they're brought together. And every morning and evening throughout Israel's history as a nation in their own land with their own temple, lambs were offered upon that altar at the beginning and the finish of every day pointing forward to the lamb that God would provide as a burnt offering who would dedicate himself totally to the service of his God and would provide a basis for all the other sacrifices and for the forgiveness of sins. And John perceived these things as he viewed the Lord Jesus Christ walking towards him. So even the disciples, I don't believe, fully understood the significance of those words because we find even at the time when the Lord was crucified they didn't understand that he'd got to die. They didn't understand that he must first be a sacrifice before he would establish the kingdom of God upon the earth. And so John clearly marked him out as the sacrificial victim that Yahweh was to provide through which he would bear away the sin of the world because he himself was a bearer of human nature and he bore it to that tree and he, he, he put it to death and he rose uh, clothed upon with divine nature and he has power to cover the sins of those who will come under him in faith. And so indeed he is the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. We find that John witnessed something further about the Lord Jesus Christ also. Down through verses 30, 31, 32 and into 33, John records the things that he had witnessed at the time of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And down at the end of them, and down in verse 34, he says, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. And so John may testify to the Lord in two ways upon that particular day. He marked him out as the Lamb of God and he identified him as the Son of God. In other words, the seed that was promised back in the book of Genesis, the seed of the woman, which was to be produced by the intervention of God. He says, here he is, the Son of God. And he bore record to the people on that that particular day as he saw the Lord Jesus Christ returning from the temptation in the wilderness and returning back to him at Bethabara. It's interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ should return from the wilderness and go first back to Bethabara where John was. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ knew that it was John who was the one who was appointed to formally introduce him to the people of Israel and identify him as the Christ. And so the Lord would naturally go back there. And when he gets back there he finds John is faithfully performing that work and identifying him as the Son of God, the Lamb of God's providing. You see, the work of John also was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The Lord now was about to start his ministry. He was going to need (coughs) disciples. He was going to need people whom he could shape and prepare for the work that was before them. And John it was that had been appointed to prepare those, initially prepare those people for him. So it's natural that the Lord Jesus Christ would come back out of the wilderness, back to Bethabara to John, before he, uh, he, he went further on his ministry. And so now this brings us down to the third day. We come down now to verses 35 uh, to 39 initially and then we believe there's another couple of verses tacked on, incorporated in this day. But we read in verse 35 and the next day after John stood and two of his disciples 
and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He said unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And so here in these verses, on this next day, we find John's testimony to his own disciples. It's in verse 36, John is, verse 35 rather, John is standing and two of his disciples. Now we believe that these two disciples were Andrew and John, John the Apostle that is. We're told in verse 40 that one of them was John, one of them was Andrew. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So one of those disciples was Andrew. The other, we believe, is John. He remains unnamed. But you see, to, to, to leave himself unnamed is quite characteristic of John's writing. It's quite characteristic of him not to name himself. You know, if that other disciple had been anyone else at all, surely John would have named him as he has every other disciple in this chapter. But you know, we go over to chapter 21 and verse 24, the very end of the um, Gospel of John. And we find uh, where this, this, this um, book is being brought to its finish. Where we read, This is the disciple which testifies of these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true. And it's absolutely characteristic of John right through his epistle. Wherever he himself is mentioned, he, he, he excludes his name. And so we believe that that disciple was John. There's not a shadow of a doubt that if it had been, been um, uh, Judas or, or anyone else, John would have named him. But he remains unnamed and we believe that that is evidence that it was John. So we find John the Baptist, John the Apostle and Andrew all standing together there in verse, 36, verse 35 on this third day of this particular week we consider. We, and, and in verse 36 we read, And looking upon Jesus, as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. It's interesting here, we, in verse 35 we find John standing. In verse 36 we find Jesus walking. We find the two disciples with John. But John directing them to follow the one that's walking. You see, John now had led them as far as he could go. His journey virtually was finished. He could lead those disciples no further. And so he's standing still. But Jesus, it would seem, is walking away from him. Going on his way. And he indicates to those disciples that now they must leave him and they must follow that one that's walking away. They must follow in his footsteps because John himself could lead them no further. And so John is standing, but he, he's beholding intently the Lord Jesus Christ as he walks. We can imagine the intent gaze that that man would have gazed upon his Lord and Master. The one throughout the whole of his life his whole life had been given to prepare the way for that one. And now he is there with his eyes gazing upon his Lord and Master, the one who meant so much for him, the one for which he had sacrificed so much. And so he's looking intently upon, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 36, he makes a statement and possibly a command as well as he talks to these two disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God's providing. And we read in verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. 
They left John and they followed after Jesus. And so we have a picture now of the Lord Jesus Christ walking away. And there's Andrew and John now following on behind, seeing where he's going, tracing out his footsteps. When suddenly in verse 38 we find that the Lord Jesus Christ turns round and he sees them following. And he says unto them, What seek ye? You know, as we read the the little brief conversation that takes place in verses 38 and 39, very easy perhaps just to skip over it as something of very little significance. But you know what a wealth of meaning there is really in those words. Now there's the Lord Jesus Christ now. He's come back to Bethabara. He's been introduced by John. He's come now to receive the people that John had prepared for him. Now he turns around and there's two men following him. He said, what seek you? very simple question but you know it's really a very profound question isn't it what were they seeking did they want to see what colour hair he had what colour eyes he had did they want to see if he could smile or not or what were they seeking you know we've been drawn here tonight but what are we seeking What are we we seeking in coming here? Do we just like to be with our brethren and sisters? Is it just an enjoyable night out? Is it just perhaps that there might be some interesting things to listen to along the way? What are we seeking? You know, the Lord Jesus Christ's question really was very probing. The Lord Jesus Christ wanted followers to whom he would mean something. People who were seeking something far higher than mortal life. People who were seeking a character far more beautiful and satisfying than that of mortal flesh. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ said on another occasion, Seek and ye shall find. And usually, in some way or other, we do find what we seek. Yahweh usually sees to that. We do find what we seek. But we must ask ourselves, what are we trying to find? The Lord wanted to know what those men were seeking. You know, the Lord got his answer. And those men knew what they were seeking. They weren't just there out of idle curiosity just to see what the Son of God would look like. They were seeking far greater things than that. You see, the verse goes on and says, They said unto him, Rabbi. A single word. But what a wealth of meaning, brethren and sisters. Rabbi. The word rabbi was a word who in late times of, of this era probably not very long before this time took place. It was a word that had become used in the religious circles in Israel. It was an honorary title that was given to outstanding teachers of the law. You know, John there gives us the interpretation of rabbi. He says, which is to say, being interpreted, master. In actual fact, the Greek word he used is the word didaskalos. It means a master in the sense of a teacher. Like we talk of a schoolmaster. He's a a schoolmaster because he's a teacher. And this term rabbi was a a term, a title, an honorary title which was bestowed upon those who were considered outstanding teachers of the law. Now the Lord Jesus Christ said to them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi. They said, we believe you're an outstanding teacher of the law. Where dwellest thou? Were they just again moved by idle curiosity as to what sort of a house, what sort of a dwelling he was living in at that time? I don't believe so. 
I believe they were really saying to him, look, we believe you're an outstanding teacher of the law. We want to come and sit at your feet and learn. That, I believe, really, was the answer that they gave to the Lord Jesus Christ and that was the answer the Lord Jesus Christ wanted. He knew they were seeking right things. He knew that they had been well prepared by the work of John for the work that he had before them. So here were men, brethren and sisters, who recognised the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ as a teacher of divine things. They were moved by the, a desire to learn. They wanted to find where he lived so they could go and sit at his feet and learn what he had to say. You see, and there's a lesson for us, brethren and sisters. That's what we must be seeking. We must be seeking to know the Lord Jesus Christ to understand the manner of his life but to why he lived the way that he did and performed the things that he did. We must get to know him and to love him and that's what these two disciples desired to do at that particular time. So, in, uh, in verse 39 we read, he says unto them, come and see. He led them to where he was camping at that particular time. And they came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. Now, you'll find the margin of your Bible here says that that was two hours before night. That is basing it upon Jewish hours of the day which would be four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, many uh, interpret it that way. Personally, I've prefer to believe that John through his gospel uses Roman time. I think there is evidence for that when we come over into John chapter 19 and verse 14. John 19 and verse 14 we read and it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour and he said unto the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And, and then he delivered up before them all. And we're told that that was about the sixth hour of the day. Now by Jewish hours that would be midday. And we learn from the other gospel records that the Lord Jesus Christ was nailed to the stake about nine o'clock in the morning. If we interpret that by Jewish hours, it's very hard to reconcile it with the other Gospels and having the Lord nailed to the stake at nine o'clock in the morning. But if John is using Roman time, it makes it six o'clock in the morning and it harmonises perfectly. We go over to John chapter 20 and verse 19, the day of the resurrection. And we go through John chapter 20 and we read how the Lord Jesus Christ came out of the tomb early in the morning of the first day of the week, so on and so forth. Verse 19, Then the same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut. Now you see, if it was Jewish time, that evening would have been the beginning of the next day. But by Roman time it would, it would have been the evening of the first day of the week. And so there seems evidence to suggest that John is using Roman time. If that is the case, it really it doesn't really matter very much which way it is. If it is, it means it was 10 o'clock in the morning when, when, when John and Andrew came to the dwelling place of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it was Jewish time, it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. If it was Roman time, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. I personally lean to the fact that it was Roman time for the reasons I've set forth. But anyway, it was the 10th hour of the day. Now, verses 41 to 42, we read, one of the two disciples which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and said unto him, We found the Messiah, which is being interpreted to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Now verse 43 goes on to the day following. 
So it seems that this, these things all happened on that third day. So we've got Andrew and John now, they followed the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has spoken to them, they've answered him, he's led them on to where he's uh, uh, camping at that particular time. But Andrew, first of all, now races off to find Simon. Races off to find his brother Simon. You know, we have some beautiful characters revealed in these men that were prepared by John the Baptist. You know, here's Andrew now. He's found the Messiah. But his first thought is for his brother. His brother Simon is down there at Bethabara too. And the first thing he wants to do now is go and find Simon. And we see here the enthusiasm that Andrew had. They were bubbling over with enthusiasm at the things that they just found. You know, these events are vibrant with excitement when we capture the spirit of what's going on. Andrew's found the Messiah. Now he's got to find his brother and bring his brother there also. You know, in Andrew we see a beautiful character. Andrew was the first disciple named. John's there as well, but he's not named. He's the first disciple named. He's the first disciple that gets a convert for the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet Andrew never again takes first place. From the moment he brought Simon, his brother Simon to the Lord Jesus Christ, Andrew took second place to Simon. In fact, Andrew is never found more than higher than fourth place on the list of the apostles. Peter, James and John always take precedence over Andrew. And yet you know, Andrew wasn't worried about that. He didn't worry about whether he was out in front or whether he was 101st. He found the Messiah and that's all that mattered to him. He found the greatest thing in the world that could be found. And that transcended everything else. He didn't worry whether he was in first place or second place or 101st place. We find that Andrew seems to be much quieter than Simon. We don't read of him a lot. He's mentioned one or two times through the Gospel records. But he's not, never, he's always there. He's never in great prominence, but he's always there, especially when he's needed. That's Andrew. So Andrew's the first to get a convert to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he races off to find his brother. And it shows the tremendous love he had for his brother Simon as he goes there and he brings him also to where the Lord Jesus Christ is dwelling. And then for the rest of the hours of that day, those three, John and Andrew and Peter, are secluded in the dwelling place of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can only imagine, brethren and sisters, the conversation that took place as those disciples sat at the feet of their Lord and Master and learnt. You know, when Simon, when Andrew brings Simon into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, we read in verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which by interpretation is a stone. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ looked at Simon with penetrating gaze. We all know Simon as the young fisherman, an impetuous, perhaps rather unstable young fisherman at that time. But the Lord Jesus Christ with penetrating eye could see in Simon the capacity to be changed, the capacity to be shaped and fitted for the kingdom of God. And so gazing upon, upon him he says, Thou art Simon the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas. You know, Simon means hearing. Jonah we know means the dove. It was through his capacity to hear the Spirit's voice that Simon was to be changed. And the Lord Jesus Christ saw that he had that capacity. And he saw that by, by his element of hearing the Spirit's voice, he would be changed and transformed. He says, Thou shalt be called C. 
Cephas. Now Cephas is a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word which means a rock or stone. In the plural form it occurs in a couple of places in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 4 for instance and at verse 29 we find the plural word Cephas used. Um, Jeremiah 4.29 we read The whole city shall flee for the noise of the horsemen and the bowmen. They shall go into thickets and climb up upon the rocks. There it is in the plural. Every city shall be forsaken and not a man dwell therein. That just shows the way that the the word means a rock. And as we have it here in verse uh, 42 it is interpreted for us a stone. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ could see that in that impetuous, unstable young man before him, with all his weaknesses, he saw that by his ability to listen to the Spirit's voice, he would be changed, he would be made into a rock, he would be made into a strong person to which others could flee for refuge in time to come. He would be shaped as a great foundation stone for the spiritual temple that Yahweh is building. And we read of that in Ephesians 2.20 and Revelation 21.14 where we read that the foundation stones of that new Jerusalem and of the temple of the living God are the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So indeed, Simon was made into a stone. You know, but it shows that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't call us because of what we are. He calls us because of what we can be made into. It's very easy sometimes for us to lose sight of that principle. Sometimes even in preaching the truth we might sum a person up and we think, well, they'd never, never accept the truth. They'd never listen to it. They're just not the right material. But how do we know? How do we know? Would we have thought that impetuous, unstable Simon could be made into a foundation stone for the temple of the living God. The Lord Jesus Christ saw that that potential was there. As he sees in every one of us there's the potential to change. None of us will get into the kingdom of God because of what we are. But we can all get there if we are changed by the power of Yahweh's word. And that's the lesson that comes out of the life of Peter. And out of these words of of Peter as the Lord Jesus Christ gazed upon him and addressed him upon upon that time. And as we see the Lord Jesus Christ as he deals with these early disciples, as we see him questioning Andrew and John, we see in Christ the power to satisfy those who seek for right things. And secondly, as Simon is brought under him, we see Christ's power demonstrated to transform those who come under him with ears to hear. May it be, brethren and sisters, that every one of us may come into that category.